Well, if you would find your copy of God's Word and turn to John, First John, sorry, First John, chapter five. Our text is going to be First John chapter five, from verse thirteen to verse twenty. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. We know That whosoever is born of God sins not, but he that is begotten of God keeps himself, and the wicked one touches him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in darkness. And we know that the Son of God is come and has given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful to be here in your presence today and to fellowship and to uh, be able to worship with you, with uh, one another and to bring praises to you and to bring our prayers to you knowing that you will answer. Lord, we We don't want to hear the thoughts of men today. We want to hear from your word. Please bless the reading of it and the proclaiming of it and use your spirit to move upon our hearts that we would embrace your son, Jesus Christ, and all of the the truth and knowledge that comes through him. Please forgive me of my sin, for it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Uh, sometimes I enjoy reading the commentary on scripture of a man named Harry Ironside. Um, he, he had an, a very interesting life. He was, he was born in Canada. He pastored Moody Bible Church in Chicago for 20 years, and then he died in New Zealand. It was a, a fascinating life. But his notes, when you read his commentaries, you come to understand that this letter of 1 John was a... Uh, a constant comfort to him and also uh, a consistent resource as he ministered to others. He would use this evangelistically for those who had never trusted Christ and he would also use it for assurance among those who had questioned their faith. And one oft-repeated account, Ironside was dealing with an elderly man who had told him, I just can't go on unless I know that I'm saved or or else I know it's hopeless to seek to be sure of it. 
I want a definite witness, something I can't be mistaken about. And so Ironside asked him if an angelic messenger would be enough. Suppose you had a, a vision of an angel who told you your sins were forgiven. Would that be enough for you to rest on? And the man agreed, yes, I, I guess an angelic messenger would be sufficient. But then Ironside asked him, but then suppose in your deathbed, Satan came and said, I was that angel transformed to deceive you. Then what would you say? The man said, I have no idea what to say. Couldn't offer an answer. And so Ironside turned in his Bible to 1 John chapter 5. He told that man that God has given us something even more reliable than an angelic messenger. He has given his son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and has witnessed in his word that when we trust him, our sins are forgiven. Eternal life is ours. He read to the man from 1 John 5 verse 13, stressing, you may know that you have eternal life. And he finally looked at him and said, well, is, is that enough? Is that enough for you to rest on this letter from heaven expressly to you? We're not going to quite reach the end of that letter this morning. But we've sort of reached this the climactic message of 1 John in the sense that John has held his, his purpose statement for writing this letter, his ultimate purpose, he's, he's held on to that until the end. It's here in verse 13. He says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. If we look at John's purpose statement there in verse 13, we understand he's writing to people who believe they have faith so that they can know the certainty of their salvation and rest confidently in that faith. In fact, this entire series on 1 John, we've called it, You Can Know. And without trying to preach the entire letter again this morning, John has said, you can know that you're saved based on three main tests. And with each test, John offered sort of a a partial reason for why he wrote the letter. So first, there was the love test. Do you truly love Jesus? And as a result of that love for Jesus, do you see that love being displayed for others who love Jesus? And he says in in chapter 1, verse 4, I write this to make your joy complete. Then there's the obedience test, right? Are you keeping the Lord's commands like a true disciple should. And he says in chapter two, verse one, I I write these things to you so that you don't sin. And then there's the truth test or the doctrinal test. Do you believe what the scriptures have to say about Jesus, that he is the eternal God come in the flesh to save sinners? Or does something else have your ear? Do other people have your attention? And he says in chapter 2, verse 26, I'm writing these things to you concerning them that seduce you. There were those who were trying to lead believers astray. And now as he gets to sort of the final verses of this letter, John transitions, right? We've, We've read his letter. We've answered his questions. We've taken the test. You're not going to get a grade from, you know, A through F. This is a simple pass-fail. If you love Jesus and love other disciples of Jesus, if you're 
opening the word and you're being obedient to the word, if you're holding fast to the apostolic teaching and not wandering off with every new wind of doctrine, you can know that eternal life is yours. And now in these final verses, John shifts from you can know to now he's talking about here's what you know. You can see this in the way he's written it. Look at verse 14. This is the confidence. This is what we know. Verse 15, if we know, then here's more that we know. Verses 18, 19, and 20 all begin with, and we know. So as a result of eternal life through faith in Jesus, John lists five realities that all Christians can embrace. See, not three, five. We get to know that God answers prayer. We know Jesus gives victory over sin. We know that we've changed sides. We know that Jesus is true and we know we have everlasting life. So let's start with we know God gives answers to prayer. Verses 14 and 15 is where this starts. This is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. Now, in order to keep from falling into uh, one of the modern pits of false doctrine, we need to keep John's teaching about prayer in context of his greater purpose. This is not the first time he's talked about the nature of knowing that you have answers to prayer. That's already come up in 1 John. Back in chapter 3, verse 22. Chapter 3, verse 22, he says, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. So in 1 John 3, 22, he says we have confidence that God answers prayer if we're living obediently, right? We, we keep his commandments. We do what's pleasing in his sight. Now, John adds in our text, chapter 5, verse 14, we know that we have God's answers to prayer if, if we ask anything according to his will, John says. This promise is a long way from the kind of blank check that the prosperity gospel folks would like to make it into. The blank check that they're after is found nowhere in God's word. Jesus also talked about answered prayer in in a conditional sense. He says in John 15, verse 7, If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask what you will and it will be done unto you. So let's just take a, a sort of an overview of what the scripture teaches together about prayer and kind of get an aggregate understanding of this. First off, this is a promise for believers. Jesus says it's for those who abide in me. There's no promise that God's going to answer unbelievers' prayer. Second, it is a promise for those who are obedient. John says in 1 John 3, 22, their interest lies in keeping his commandments and doing those things that please him. Third, this is a promise for those who are seeking Christ's glory. Jesus says in John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
that kind of leaves out, you know, Lord, give me a new private jet for the glory of Jesus, right? That's, that's not the idea here. Fourth, our will is going to be in accordance with God's will. John shows uh, in his gospel as he records Jesus saying in, in John 15 verse 7 that abiding in him, you can ask what you will, right? What you desire. But now we see here in, in our text in verse 14 that our confidence is in asking what God desires, right? You are asking according to God's will. I think we have to understand that a saved person who is seeking to bring glory to Jesus, being obedient to his word, is going to have their desires so transformed that what we will and what we desire is those things that God wills and what God desires. That submission is reflected in Jesus, who is our example, who prayed himself. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So this promise of answered prayer is not a blank check to get whatever you want. It's the understanding that what you want when you're living obediently to Christ is going to be in line with the very things that God himself wants. Now I recognize that the truth of the purpose of prayer is going to be a disappointment to some folks. And if it's disappointing to you, I would just ask you to ask yourself why that is. Do you not want what God wants? Do you not believe that what God wants for you is always and in every way better than what you want for yourself? If a blank check is what you're after, then you're likely not interested in asking for things for the glory of Jesus. And yet, in this passage, there is nothing that puts up kind of a roadblock for you to come to God in prayer and express the desires of your heart. Because when you're living obediently to Jesus and you have an interest in the glory of Jesus and you are doing those things which pleases God, then the things that are in your heart, John says, you're, you're asking according to God's will. You're asking for the things that God wants. God's likely more interested in blessing you than you are in being blessed. So don't hesitate to pray for the desires of your heart that will bring glory to Jesus, knowing that the Father is ready, willing, and able to answer prayer. If you're familiar with George Mueller at all, it's hard not to think of him in regard to prayer. He, he operated numerous orphanages without ever asking a person for a single penny. He relied entirely on God's providence, bringing his needs to God in prayer, and he was never disappointed. But Mueller said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. Prayer is laying hold of God's willingness. It should be readily apparent to us, though, based on this context in, the, in 1 John 5, that John isn't really just thinking about the petitions that we desire of him are going to be for things like, you know, a, a new yacht or a seven-figure salary. Listen to what he says in verse 16. If any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask, 
And he, that's God, shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say he shall pray for that. Let's just be up front here right away. Verse 16 is one of the most difficult verses in all of scripture to interpret and explain. We could lose ourselves in verse 16 for a few hours, and I'm sure you don't want to do that, right? Cross-referencing, well, what does John mean about this sin unto death? And, you know, how does it compare with the, the unforgivable blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that Jesus talked about in the Gospels? And I'm pretty sure after doing all that, we wouldn't be any less confused for having done it. I have a old friend from the newspaper named Vicky who, um, she had a favorite saying. And really what she was saying was get to the point. But she always liked to say, I don't need to hear the labor pains. I just want to see the baby. And so in Vicky's honor, a few quick points, just trying to get to the point of verse 16. First, remember, this is all in the context of prayer. If verses 14 and 15 were by themselves, we'd say, well, John's talking about prayer in the sense of only petitions, asking God for the things that we want. But verse 16 makes it clear, this is more about than just petitions. This is also about intercession. It's asking and praying to God about what you want for others. Second, John is giving us an example of what we should pray for and what we should not pray for. He says in verse 16, if you see a brother sinning a sin that is not unto death, he shall ask, right? You pray for them. But there is a sin unto death. He says, and I'm not saying that you should pray for that. Third, it seems most likely that John intends for us to understand death in the sense of spiritual death, not physical death. Some people argue, well, this has to be about when someone sins and as a result of their sin, they die. You know, kind of like Ananias and Sapphira back in Acts, right? They came to the church, they lied to the church, they committed that sin, they dropped dead. I don't think that's what John's picturing here at all. Verses 16 and 17, where he's talking about death, are sandwiched between his teaching about eternal life. You can see up in verse 13, we have eternal life. After it, in verse 20, he's talking about eternal life. So this isn't talking about physical death. It's talking about spiritual death. Fourth, the most important difference between John's two examples of here's what you do pray for and here's what you don't pray for is that the one who sins a sin that is not unto death You can see in verse 16, he is called a brother. But the one who sins a sin that is unto death is not called a brother. So a brother, a saved person, can fall into sin, but it's not going to lead to ultimate spiritual death because Jesus has secured eternal life for them. John's about to explain in verse 18 how a person who is born again will not just go on sinning. And so to try to wrap that all together, this sin unto death is evidently only something an unbeliever can do. 
And while I know there are good commentators and preachers who might reach a different conclusion, it seems to me that John is describing this sin unto death as the kind of rejection of the gospel of Jesus that the false teachers in this letter have been doing. If we just let the text speak for itself, I think that's the conclusion we're going to reach. In practical terms then, these two examples, when we see a brother who is committing sin, John said, don't go gossiping to other people about it, go to God about it. John says that God will give him life for those that don't sin unto death. But the kind of false teachers who have abandoned the assembly and rejected the gospel, John says, I'm not telling you to pray for the restoration to something they weren't part of in the first place. When someone is in continual and constant rejection of the gospel, spiritual death is their sure destiny. You praying something that is not in God's will is not going to help them. You want your prayers to be according to God's will. So verses 14 through 17, all about we know that God answers prayer. We can come to God in prayer with petitions of things that we need for his glory and also for interceding on the behalf of others. The second point is we know that Jesus gives us victory over sin. Verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not unto death. John's being careful here because he doesn't want his readers to read verses 14 through 16 in order to kind of pit one kind of sin against another kind of sin and conclude, well, there are lesser sins in the eyes of God and greater sins in the eyes of God. And so verse 17, John reminds us that all unrighteousness is sin. Let's just think on this for a moment, just a second, and try to understand John's purpose. Because for all the effort that people want to put into trying to figure out, well, what is this sin unto death? it would seem in the context that John is writing specifically to believers and his greatest concern is about those sins that are not unto death. His concern is about those so-called, you know, respectable sins which believers commit and then try to act like they're too trivial to be addressed. There is sin which is not unto death, the sins which believers commit and yet it is Sin, just the same. He says all unrighteousness is sin. Our little white lies, our greed, our anger, our selfishness, our gossiping, all of that is unrighteousness. He says it's sin. It needs to be addressed. And so he goes on to say in verse 18, we know that whoever is born of God sins not, but he that is begotten of God keeps himself that the wicked one, and that wicked one touches him not. This is the final time that John speaks to the idea of being born again. He calls it in verse 18 being born of God or begotten of God. And it's a, been a major point in his letter that you can know that you're born again. Here's what he said in chapter 2, verse 29. If you live righteously, before God, you, you, you know that you're born of God. In chapter 3, verse 9, whoever is born of God does not commit sin, does not go on sinning. 
He cannot sin because he's born of God. In chapter four, verse seven, everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. Up in verse one of chapter five, whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah is born of God. In verse four here, whatever is born of God overcomes, has victory over the world and that victory is our faith. And now he says again that a person who is born of God does not sin. Now, does that seem right to you? Are you a believer and therefore you are perfect and you no longer sin? Yeah, me neither. Of course, John understands that a born-again believer can commit sin. He just said that's the very kind of person that we need to be praying for, interceding for on their behalf, and God will give him life in verse 16. So John doesn't deny that we sin, but verse 18 seems to give us three supporting truths in regard to our sin. First, a child of God, a person who is born again, does not live habitually in violation of God's standards. You can see the word sinneth, sins, here, is in present, active sense. The English Standard Version does a really good job getting the sense of it here when it says, everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Prior to faith in Jesus, sin marked the the pattern of our lives. But after faith in him, Jesus and following his example is the pattern of our lives. And we fail so often. And yet whatever unrighteousness we find, it's our goal to eradicate that unrighteousness, knowing that it is sin. John is not saying that we're perfect. He's already said back in Chapter three, if you remember, when does perfection happen for us? Well, perfection happens for us when we see him face to face and we are made like him when we see him as he is. Second, a person who is born again is constantly guarded against and guarding against sin. There's a phrase in verse 18 that's difficult to translate, and it's, it's complicated. It's complicated by the fact that some manuscripts read slightly differently. But that phrase, he that is begotten of God keeps himself. This is sometimes understood as saying the, the individual who has been born again, they've been born of God, is going to keep themselves. They're going to be on guard against sinning. And to be sure, the word of God does have a lot to say about how Christians should guard themselves. In 1 Timothy 5.22, it says we're to keep ourselves pure. James 1.27 says to keep ourselves unspotted, unstained from the world. Jude verse 21 says to keep ourselves in the love of God. In this letter, back in chapter 3 verse 22, John says we're to keep God's commandments And he's about to say in verse 21, at the very end of this letter, keep yourself from idols. So we are called to diligence when it comes to obeying God and refraining from sin. But verse 18 might actually be saying something just a little different. That phrase could also read, we know that whoever is born of God sins not, but he that is begotten of God 
keeps him. In which case, it would be Jesus who is the only begotten of God. And John's saying every born again believer is not protected simply by their own diligence, but by the very begotten son of God who himself is guarding them. And that is also true. Because while the word of God commands us to be on guard, it also is clear that Christ is constantly guarding us. John 17, 12, Jesus prays and says, those that you have given me, I have kept them in your name. 1 Peter 1, 5 describes us being kept by the power of God. The very same writer, Jude, who wrote in verse 21 of his letter that we are to keep ourselves in the love of God, a few verses later says that it is Christ who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless to the presence of his glory. So the first supportive truth about sin is that a born-again believer is not going to live habitually in sin. The second is that we, we have assurance that we are constantly guarding and are guarded against sin. Third, John says in verse 18, the wicked one touches him not. Satan is prevented from causing undue harm to those who believe in Jesus. The word touch, I am sorry to say, does not mean Satan can't put a finger on you. Although it's true, without God's permission, Satan is powerless to touch us in any way. But we learn from Job that sometimes God removes his restraining hand for our good and for his glory. The word touch here is the Greek word that means to, to lay hold of or to, to grasp with, with a certain amount of violence. And so to be sure, Satan can tempt us. He's the roaring lion that's pacing back and forth, seeking who he may devour. He will use our friends and our failures and our own flesh to try to lure us away from Christ. But here's the promise that even when we sin, that wicked one has no ability to grasp us, to lay his hands on us and drag us back down into spiritual death. When we know Jesus, we have victory over sin, not because of our own righteousness and our own willpower, but because Jesus has already secured forgiveness for us. Through salvation, he has saved us from the penalty of sin. Through sanctification, he is saving us from the power of sin. And when we stand before him in glory, he'll, we'll even be saved from the presence of sin. So we've seen the things that we know. We know that God gives the answer to prayer. We know Jesus gives victory over sin. Third, we know that we've changed sides. Verse 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in darkness. John would have us to understand that the entire existence of human history can be broken down into two simple groups. And those groups aren't black and white. They aren't Republicans and Democrats. They aren't even people who are late and people who are on time. This is, it's, it's as simple as this. There is the family of God and then there's everyone else. 
There's those who are in the light and there are those who are in darkness. Back in chapter one, verse five, John said, God is light and in him is no darkness. And he encouraged us in verse seven to walk in the light. In chapter two, verses eight through 10, he says, the darkness is past, the, the true light now shines. If you say that you're in the light, but you hate your brother, you got in, you're really in darkness. But whoever loves his brother lives in the light. You can know that you're born again, that you're in the family of God and that you've been in the words of Peter, called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And you are either in that light or you're still in darkness. You're either a child of God or you're part of what John describes in verse 19, the whole world that lies in wickedness. We can even back up the idea one verse to verse 18. You are either drawn into the family of God or you are still within the grasp of Satan himself. When the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the church at Corinth, he said the gospel could be hidden from those who are lost because Satan blinds their eyes so that the light of the glorious gospel of Christ can't shine on them. But that the same God who spoke into the darkness of creation and said, let there be light. He has, he has shined in our hearts, giving us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And so there is this transformation that's taken place when we're born again. God has shined the light of the gospel into our hearts. He's, he's taken us from Satan's grasp. He's removed us out of the wicked world. He's made us his children through saving faith in his perfect child, Jesus. Colossians 1.13, Paul says, he's delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us, right, transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. We've been drafted out of the world. We've been enlisted into the army of God. And yet our king tells us, those people over there on the other side, <laughs> Those aren't your enemies. Or at least, if they're your enemies, he's told us, love our enemies. The great divide that exists between the children of God and the wickedness of this world is not a cause for hate, at least not on our part. For sure, it's gonna cause them to hate us. But it's a call to proclaim the gospel of Jesus as the only light that can shine into that darkness and lead them out of the clutches of Satan and of sin and into the light of Christ. We know, John says in verse 19, we are of God. The whole world lies in wickedness. We know we've been brought out of that and we've changed sides. Fourth, we know that Jesus is true. Look at verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. As he's nearing the end of his letter, John sort of come full circle to where he began back in chapter one, verses one through three in chapter one. You remember John said, look, I, I, I heard him, I, I saw him, I touched him. I'm, I'm telling you all about him so that you can have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with him. Now he says the son of God is 
come. Present tense. This is not just about the work that Jesus has done in the past. There is this ongoing work of Jesus in the present. He has, John says, given us an understanding. We've come to know that the one who claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life is, in fact, all three of those things. He's the way to be reconciled to God. He is the truth, and he gives the truth, and he gives us a relationship, John says, with the truth. He says that we may know him that is true. There are two ways this word know is often used in scripture. The first way is to have knowledge. So like if you learn something, someone explains to you as a child, two plus two equals four, it's in your head, you, you know it. The second way that the word know is used in scripture and most often is used in scripture is to speak of relationship. Right? When, when Adam knew Eve, it wasn't that he just met her and said, hi, nice to see you, how you doing? Your name's Eve. Right? They had a relationship. A son was the result. When, when Jesus said that some people at the end of time are going to be told, depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus wasn't saying, I don't know who you are. He was saying, I don't have a relationship with you. I bring that up because John has both ideas there in verse 20. To have knowledge and to have a relationship are his intention. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding, right? We have knowledge, but that we understand is that we may know him that is true. We would have a a relationship and we are, John says, in him, even in his son, Jesus Christ. So we have a knowledge, an understanding of what is true, but we also have a relationship abiding in the one who is true. The word John uses for understanding here is interesting because for all the talk of knowing in his letter, This is the only time he uses this particular word. The word understanding here is the Greek word dianoia, which carries the idea of reasoning, which leads to perception. That should dispel the notion that faith in Jesus is blind faith. It's not, it's reasonable faith. We've come to perceive the truth that Jesus himself embodies all that is true. He's the true God. He's come in the flesh. He's True righteousness revealed. He speaks truth in all that he says. We know that Jesus is true. So John said, we we know God gives answer to prayer. We know Jesus gives victory over sin. We know that we've changed sides. We know that Jesus is true. The final reality for Christians to embrace is that we know we have everlasting life. The end of verse 20 This is the true God and eternal life. Look back up at verse 13. These things I've written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. This is the essence of what we know. All along, John has been saying you can know Right, that you have eternal life. And now he says, because you believe in the name of the Son of God, 
Not only is eternal life something that you can know, but it is the very essence of what we do know. It is even who we know because knowing, having that relationship through faith in him, knowing Jesus means that you know the true God and eternal life. Look at that one little sentence all on its own in verse 20. This is the true God and eternal life. That's who he is. Let's make sure we understand what this eternal life thing is all about because it's very likely that most often we think about it wrong. This eternal life is not, it's not living forever physically. Jesus says in Mark 10 verse 30 that in the world to come we have eternal life, right? Although eternity in heaven does mean being forever with Jesus. It's the with Jesus part that makes it eternal life. That's what's the most important. When Jesus finished his sermon in John 16, just before the cross, the entirety of John 17 turns to him praying. And, And here's how he begins that prayer. Just listen, John 17 One through three, Jesus spoke these words, lifting his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given them. And this is eternal life. It's like, here's the definition. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is eternal life? It's to know the true God through his son, Jesus Christ. That's why John says here in verse 20, this is the true God and eternal life. If you think of eternal life simply in the sense of, well, it's life that lasts forever, then you are sadly focused on the quantity of life and not the quality of it. Y'all, that's why scripture doesn't speak about everlasting life as something that you'll just have someday. Through faith, it's something that you have now. Here's what Jesus says in the gospels in John 3, 36, he that believes on the son has everlasting life. John 6, 47, he that believes on me has everlasting life. In John 5, 24, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Right? We've, we've made that change of sides. Through faith in Jesus, we know God gives the answer to prayer. So pray. He's our heavenly father. He loves us. He listens. We know Jesus gives victory over sin. So fight against sin. When you have sin in your life, it's, it's unrighteousness and it must be addressed. Struggle against it. We know that we've changed sides. So live your life like a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, not as a citizen of this world. We know that Jesus is true. And so measure your whole life on that gospel-centered reality of this is what it's all about. And we know we have everlasting life. 
And that doesn't mean we just have life that lasts forever. It's life with Jesus forever.